Good morning, church. Uh, as Daniel said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central, and it is my privilege to share with you this morning God's Word. We're continuing uh, in our series of Roots uh, in the book of Genesis, uh, and we're going to be reading from Genesis chapter 15. Uh, as is our custom, if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? This is Genesis chapter 15. It's God's word. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur, of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid them each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half, and when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us now through your holy word. We're so grateful that you have given us your word to lead and guide us. Father, I pray that you would allow me, your servant, to get out of your way so that you can speak to us so that we might be transformed. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear and hearts that understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. It's, it's really difficult to build trust, isn't it? Amen, amen it is. Uh, as, as human beings, we're always struggling, groping for ways to communicate trustworthiness to one another. We see evidence of this on the playground, amongst children, in a pinky pinky swear. Uh, We see this in a back alley, in a blood pact, 
between young boys and a gang. As grown-ups, we're a little more sophisticated in our attempts to communicate trustworthiness. We say things like, my word is my bond. Or, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Or, if we're super desperate, we might even swear on a deceased person's grave. And as bizarre as many of these methods are, they all seek to accomplish the exact same thing. They seek to communicate to someone, you can trust me. I will deliver on my promise. And the reason that we as humans have resorted to all these ridiculous methods is because people are inherently untrustworthy, right? This is why lawyers exist. This is why we have contracts. This is why we hang up the phone when someone calls to offer us a free gift. People are untrustworthy. And as hard as we try to prove otherwise, we as human beings have a tendency to go back on our word, to fail to come through on our promises. And therefore, our default is not to trust. Our default is to doubt. Our text this morning is all about trust. It's, it's not about trust between one human being and another, but it's about trust between one human being and God. Abram has heard the promises of God in chapter 12 that Daniel preached on last week, and here again in chapter 15, and he's now come to a crossroads of sorts, the place where he must decide whether he is going to trust God or not, to trust that God will come through on his promises. And embedded in this trust experiment between God and Abram is a major theological motif or theme, one of the two biggest motifs in all of Scripture. And that major motif is the idea of covenant. The other major motif being kingdom, for those of you who are paying attention. Kingdom and covenant. These are two huge themes in, strict, in Scripture. The kingdom of covenant, the, excuse me, the theme of covenant is what we saw magnified in the book of Acts that we've been studying. And now we come to Genesis, and although there certainly is kingdom here as well, the major theme that we're seeing magnified is this theme of covenant. And when we examine covenant in the Bible, we are seeing the primary analogy that God uses to describe His relationship with His people. Did you get that? This is so important. Covenant reveals the way in which God relates to us as humans. I'm going to read this quote by one of my seminary professors, Dr. Frame, Dr. John Frame, in reference to covenants in Scripture, just to make sure that we're understanding the weightiness of this subject. He says, the whole Bible, diverse in content as it may appear at first sight, can be seen as a story of God making covenants and man responding to them. The book of the law show what God expects of his covenant people. The books of history indicate man's actual response. The Psalms contain the praise, the laments, the questionings, the blessings, and curses which should be on the lips of a covenant people. The wisdom books contain applications of the covenant law to human problems. The prophets bring God's covenant lawsuit against the covenant breakers while at the same time promising covenant renewal. The gospel and acts present the history of the new covenant which is applied to believers 
into world history in the epistles and Revelation. Basically, what Dr. Frame is saying is that covenants in the Bible are huge. It's a huge deal. And in order for us to understand Abram's journey from doubt to trust, we first have to understand this idea of covenant and the massive role that it played in Abram's journey. So enough intro. I want to dive in now with the text. I have three points this morning. First, the response to God's covenant promises. Second, the reward of God's covenant promises. And lastly, the ratification of God's covenant promises. The response, the reward, and ratification of God's covenant promises. Let's begin. We begin with the response, the response to God's covenant promise. And it doesn't take a genius to figure out what kind of response God desires from His people. The text makes plain that God wants us to trust His promises. He wants us to believe that He will deliver on what He has said He will do. But as we just pointed out, trust is very hard for us. It's very hard for us to give. And our text gives us Abram as an example of one who moves from doubt to trust. So let's unpack Abram's journey of walking into the appropriate response of God's covenant promises. Our text begins with this phrase, after these things, which demands that we first examine what these things are in order to understand the context. So these things is pointing back to chapter 14. And what we see here is that Abram has just won this massive military victory, a victory that was given to him by God. And so then, responding to that, after that, God appears to Abram in a vision, and the first words out of God's mouth are what? He says, fear not. Fear not. Which is very strange. It's very strange for God to start in this way, isn't it? We would assume that after this huge victory, God might say, hey, Abram, don't get a big head. Calm down. You know, don't be so prideful. It was me who did that. But that's not where God goes. God actually goes right at his heart. He goes to the dominant emotion that Abram is dealing with at this time, which is fear. But what is Abram afraid of? I mean, God has just proven himself to be powerful and able to do awesome and mighty things. What is there to be afraid of? Look again at our text, verse 2. Says, but Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Did you catch it? God has just showed up huge in Abram's life, but not in the way that Abram was hoping. Can anyone relate to that? Can you relate to God certainly being good to you in various ways, but maybe there's this one thing that you are hoping that God would do for you, and He just continues to withhold that one thing in your life. Maybe it's a job, maybe it's a spouse, or a home, a car, maybe a child. And it's God's withholding of that one thing that makes it so difficult for you to trust Him. It's the withholding of that one thing that makes it almost impossible for you appropriately to respond to His promises. It makes you doubt. Amen? Look again at Abram's situation. Remember, 
God has clearly spoken, Daniel preached on this last week, that he is going to make Abram into a great nation, Genesis 12. He has guaranteed Abram offspring, but why does Abram still doubt? Why does he still doubt? Brothers and sisters, there are two fundamental reasons why we doubt instead of trust in the promises of God. That's not one of them. Sorry. We doubt because we doubt that God is able or we doubt that He cares. These are the two fundamental reasons why we doubt. We either doubt that God is able or we doubt that He cares. Abram probably does a little bit of both here. He and his wife are well beyond the childbearing age, and so we can see Abram kind of thinking, man, God, maybe you missed the window on this one. Maybe you missed it. Where were you 20 years ago? And certainly Abram's doubting whether God cares. He's just seen God show up huge and provide this military victory. And so he knows that God is powerful, but he's sitting there and he has no child. And he's thinking, God, do you even care? Do you even care about me? What is it for you? I don't know what it is for you. Do you wrestle more with doubting that God is able or doubting that God cares? I know lately for me, I've really been struggling with doubting that God cares, particularly that He cares enough to protect my family. Um, There's been some things that have happened in my neighborhood lately that have caused me to say, where are you at, God? Why have you abandoned us? And yet I know that God has promised in Matthew 6 that He knows my needs and that He's promised to take care of them in Deuteronomy 31 and Hebrews 13 that He will never leave or forsake me, and yet I still doubt I still doubt. Anyone relate to that, or is that just me? Amen. So what do we do with that? What do we do with all that doubt? Our text reveals two ways that Abram seeks to cultivate trust in God. The first thing he does is he brings his doubt straight to God. He doesn't feign faith. He doesn't try to put on a happy face and act like everything's okay. He doesn't lie and respond with fine when someone asks how he's doing. Probably a whole sermon right there. He brings himself, his doubting, fearful, a little bit angry self to the one who can do something about it. He brings himself to God. We see this in two places. In verse 2, as we've already read, after God says, fear not. Abram's response is basically, God, I can't help it, I'm scared to death. And then again in verse 8, just after God has re-upped his promise to bless Abraham with children, Abram comes right back with this honest, seeking question. He says, oh Lord, how do I know? How do I know that I shall possess it? When I first read this, I'm thinking, what's your deal, Abram? What's wrong with you? But the more I get into the text and the more I get into my own heart, I can see it. I'm right there with Abram wondering deep down, God, how do I know? How do I know for sure that you're going to come through on what you've promised? Brothers and sisters, if we cannot be honest with God about our doubts and fears, we don't stand a chance. What is beautiful here in our text is how God responds to Abram's doubt. He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't chastise him. He welcomes the question. He meets Abram right where he's at, 
and he gives him the assurance that he's so longing for. Isn't that beautiful? One commentator says of this interaction, he says, questioning and faith are not antithetical. In fact, this questioning actually flows out of faith. It actually takes spiritual energy and faith to complain in contrast to despairing and silence. I love that. Brothers and sisters, we, we must muster up the little faith that we have to bring our questions to God rather than to despair in silence. Amen? So that's the first thing that Abram does to cultivate trust. He brings his doubt to God. And the second thing that he does is he remembers God's faithfulness. Look at verse 7. And God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. You see, when God ever establishes a covenant with his people, he always begins by graciously reminding his people of his faithfulness to them. His unmerited faithfulness, I might add. God is reminding Abraham that he chose him and has delivered him in the past, and he's challenging Abram to trust in his past experience of God's character and to believe that God's character is immutable and unchangeable. Church, we have to believe that, that God's character does not change. I hope that you are journaling people. There are countless scriptures that point to us as Christians being journaling people if you need some coercing this morning. And the reason we need to journal is because we are so prone to forget. We forget how good God has been. Part of my spiritual rhythm is to periodically go back and read my journals so that I can be reminded of God's faithfulness to me so that I will be able to trust and trust more. Church, are you bringing your doubts to God? And are you making an effort to record and remember the history of God's faithfulness in your life? That's how we fight against the doubt in our lives and cultivate trust in Him and in His magnificent promises. Amen? Which leads us to our second point this morning. The reward of God's covenant promises. Verse 6 here in our text is truly a watershed verse in terms of our understanding of the gospel. Such a short statement, yet so pregnant with gospel goodness. Listen to verse 6 again. And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he, God, counted it to him as righteousness. What is the reward for us appropriately responding to God's covenant promises? Righteousness. The reward for us trusting in Him is righteousness. And to be clear, when we say righteousness here, we're, we're referring to the guarantee of salvation. Righteousness being the thing that is required to secure our pardon in the day of judgment. This is huge. Apart from said righteousness, the Scripture is clear that we will suffer eternal damnation. That is the righteousness that we're referring to here. But church, do we really understand this gift of righteousness described in verse 6. This past Wednesday, J.R. and I were talking with a homeless man named Forrester. Uh, and after a little while of getting to know each other, I asked Forrester if he was a Christian. Uh, to which he emphatically replied, no, not a Christian. 
To which I responded, oh, so you don't believe in God? Forrester said, no, I didn't say that. He said, oh, so your issues is with Jesus, I said. No, not with Jesus, he said, I believe in him too. I said, so then what makes you a non-Christian, I asked. And basically what he said to me is that he sees himself as a non-Christian because he doesn't go to church. You see, we live in a society that ultimately preaches the narrative of karma, don't we? If you're a good person, then you'll be rewarded, either in this life or maybe in some afterlife. And if we dig in a little bit, we see that that is really, that's, that's the reality that our culture embraces as the primary motivation for morality. And what is so tragic about this is that how this narrative has so seeped its way into the church. You see, Forrester had been told somewhere along the way that he needed to have his fanny in the pew and his tithe in the plate in order for God to love him. That's what he was believing. That's how he was seeing God's blessing to be acquired. But that's not what verse 6 says, is it? contrary to the narrative of today it's not our righteous deeds that merit God's favor but our response of faith to God's covenant promises that merit God's favor do you hear that it's not our righteous deeds that merit God's favor but our response of faith to God's covenant promises that merit God's favor Abram believed God's promise of the birth of a child of an heir And verse 6 says that God counted that equivalent to meeting the moral demands of the law. The prophet Nehemiah later comments on this event. He's saying that the reason God makes this covenant with Abram is not because Abram was some moral upstanding figure, because God found Abram's heart to be faithful. He found his heart to be faithful. Brothers and sisters, this is the glory of the gospel that God does not require that we perform for Him, but that we simply trust and believe in Him. And when we put our faith and trust in Him, that faith is reckoned to us, it is rewarded to us as righteousness, the righteousness that secures our salvation. That's the gospel, that's the good news of the gospel. And so what that means, brothers and sisters, so what? What does that mean for us? It means that Those of you who are Christians, we need to repent of the ways that we are trying to daily perform for God to earn His favor. As Tim Keller says, we need to repent of our damnable good deeds, the ways that we perform and try to control God with our morality. We need to rest. We need to rest in the gift of righteousness that comes by faith alone in Christ alone. We must daily repent of our self-righteous moralism. And then for those of you in this room who've been hearing that other narrative all of your life, the narrative that had been given to Forrester, may this message, may this truth be the thing that sets you free. May you realize for the first time that you don't have to perform for God, that all that God requires of you is that you trust Him, that you put your faith and trust in Him, and that He will reward you with righteousness. But how can this be? How can God reward us with righteousness in spite of our incredible moral failures? In spite of our lack of obedience to God's law? Great question. It leads us to our third and final point, the ratification 
of God's covenant promise. Look again at verses 9 through 17, and let me summarize, if I may, what's happening here. It's a little bit confusing. So God has commanded Abram to cut these various animals in half and line them up in a row. And for us, this seems rather bizarre, maybe even cultic, but Abram would have known exactly what's going on here. What Abram would have known is this is a common ancient Near Eastern ritual often conducted between two rulers. And the idea is that the rulers would make promises to one another. And then they would walk through the carcasses together. And what they'd basically be saying is, if I don't uphold my end of the bargain, may I become like these animals, be cut in two. It's really an a old, old school version of cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. That's what these guys are saying. And so Abram sees that, he understands what's going on, and he's, he's very ready and willing to enter into this agreement with God. But then something strange happens. Verse 12, God causes a deep sleep to fall on Abram. And then in verse 17, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch pass between these pieces. Now there's much debate about the significance of these two objects, but what no one is questioning is that these objects clearly represent God himself passing through the carcasses alone. And so the profound statement here, this is huge, church, is that God is saying, I will uphold my end of the bargain whether you uphold your end or not. I'm making covenant with myself. And even more than that, what he's saying, he's saying, if there is covenant unfaithfulness, if someone doesn't uphold their end of the bargain, I'm going to take the fall. I will be like these animals. I will be slain. But how can this be? How can God... The God of the universe be slain, be cut in half. How can God be put to death? Certainly this would have been a question that Abram was asking and, and really all of his descendants after him. And it would be a really long time before they got a definitive answer. Certainly they would have gotten hints and clues as to what the answer might be. But they didn't get the absolute answer until thousands of years later. And the answer came in the form of a man a man named Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the great ratifier of the covenant. You see, he fulfilled both requirements of the covenant. He was the only one who was perfectly faithful to the covenant. He perfectly upheld the law, obeyed God fully and completely, the thing that we could not do. And he satisfied the other requirement of the covenant as well. He took on the punishment of covenant unfaithfulness that we deserved. That's the cross. If you've ever wondered what the cross is all about, it's about the unfaithfulness that we bring to the table that Jesus Christ dealt with. It's because of the cross, and only because of the cross, that God was able to make this statement in verse 6. That God was able to credit us righteousness in spite of our unfaithfulness. You see, when God made this covenant, He was signing His own death certificate. He knew that He'd have to die so that we might be righteous and so that we might be in relationship with him. That's the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel. The covenant has been ratified by Jesus Christ and the rewards are ours for the taking. We just simply trust and believe in him. Amen? This past weekend, I watched uh, the movie McFarlane, USA. It's a movie that just came out on video. It's a story of a coach, Jim White, 
who moves to a small farming town called McFarland to be the track coach. Uh, what's interesting about the story is McFarland is a 100% Latino community, and Coach White is coming from white suburbia. And for the majority of the movie, the young boys don't even give Coach White the time of day. They won't even refer to him as coach. They refer to him as White, which is rather fitting. Um, but one day, Coach White decides he's going to get up early before dawn and join these boys in the fields. And so he gets out there with the boys, and he, he doesn't even make it to the breakfast break before he passes out. He's done. It works. It's way too hard. But what happens in that day is that because he chose to seek to become like them and entered into their world, the boys began to ultimately trust him, and they began to form this team unity. Brothers and sisters, our default as human beings is to doubt. We've been hardwired not to trust because the world around us has proven to be untrustworthy. But we serve a God who is categorically different. Much like Co Coach White, but on a far greater scale, He has come and dwelt among us. He's come to be with us. He took on flesh and became like us. In the most glorious act of humility, God came to earth in the form of man and perfectly fulfilled the law. He satisfied the demands of the covenant and dealt with our covenant infidelity. And so, brothers and sisters, my hope for each of us, wherever you're at, is that Jesus Christ, that He would be the glorious motivator, that the cross would motivate us to move from doubt to trust, knowing that our trust guarantees us salvation because Christ has dealt with our sin on the cross. Brothers, we move into trust because our doubt makes no sense in, what, in light of what Christ has done. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I confess that I daily struggle with doubting you. I find it so hard to truly trust that you are faithful, that you will come through on your promises. God, I pray that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ would, would move me, would move us from doubt to faith that we would remember your faithfulness to us, that we would remember what you've done on our behalf, that we would rest assured that our salvation, that our righteousness is secure because of Jesus Christ. And would that motivate us to walk with you and be faithful? God, I'm asking these things in your Son's name. Amen.